are you in? They're not breathing. What do I do? What suburb are you in? North Ride. North Ride. <laughs> and your parents are both... No They're both being shot at, they? I don't know. This is not a It's July 10, 2001. Triple Zero Emergency Dispatchers receive a phone call from 20-year-old Seth Gonzalez, a Filipino-Australian, who tells them he's just arrived home, found his mother, father and sister murdered, and that he has chased off the intruders. Police arrive and find the dead bodies of 46-year-old Teddy Gonzalez, 43-year-old Loiva Gonzalez and his 18-year-old sister Claudine. They also see the words, fuck off Asians KKK, spray painted on the wall. Is this a heinous hate crime? Or is there something more sinister going on? Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So let's get a bit of background on the Gonzalez family. They originally lived in uh, Baguio uh, in the Philippines, where Seth was born to Teddy and Loiva Gonzalez. At 4.26pm, July 16, 1990, the Luzon earthquake, which had a surface wave magnification of 7.8 and produced a 125-kilometre-long ground rupture, destroyed the family's hotel. Seth was rescued by his father from the rubble of the collapsed hotel. Teddy then moved his family to Australia, where he set up a business as an immigration lawyer. Being a devout Catholic family, Seth attended Parramatta Marist Brothers, a Catholic boys' school, and his family had high expectations of him to perform academically and hoped he would have a career in medicine or law. He did not perform well during his higher school certificate, but still managed to enter university. He attended the Uni of New South Wales on the Warrane Residential College at Kensington, New South Wales, and had failed a bridging course in medicine and was facing expulsion from a pre-law course at Macquarie University. His parents were very controlling and had even sent their daughter, Claudine, to Melbourne to complete high school after disapproving of her boyfriend. Claudine had returned home for the school holidays and had only just celebrated her 18th birthday the day before she was murdered and had planned to return to Melbourne in a few days' time. Melbourne's about 720 kilometres away. Seth tried to cover up his poor performance at university by falsifying his results, but his parents found out and they threatened to take his car away from him. He had also argued with his mother about his girlfriend four years his senior, and his parents had threatened to disinherit him. His girlfriend eventually left him and went back to her old boyfriend. So Seth is young, frustrated, and can't see any way out of his predicament. 
Police were to find that Seth's sister, Claudine, had been strangled, struck at least six separate blows to the head with a baseball bat and stabbed many times with one or both of the knives that were missing from the kitchen. She suffered five major stab wounds to her neck and two major stab wounds to her chest or abdomen. Loiva, Seth's mother, suffered multiple stab wounds and cuts to her face, neck, chest and abdomen. Mrs. Gonzalez's windpipe was completely transected. That is, the upper half of the windpipe was completely severed from the lower half. Teddy Gonzalez suffered multiple stab wounds to his neck, chest, back and abdomen. One of the stab wounds penetrated his right lung, another penetrated his heart and another partially severed his spinal cord. As you all well know, true crime islanders, in cases where a spouse or family member is killed, police will always need to interview close family members to rule them out and is often the ones that are close that will be the perpetrators. So uh, when police interviewed Seth, he initially came up with the following alibi. Seth told police... He'd gone to his father's Blacktown Law Office around lunchtime to fix his father's computer. He then was out for the rest of the day until around 8pm when he picked up his friends and went into Sydney to play video games. At around 11.45pm, he returned home and noticed a noise coming from inside the house. When he entered the building, he said he saw his father's dead body and had chased off the alleged killers. He rang the triple zero emergency services hotline and police arrived. Here they found Teddy Gonzalez stabbed to death, Loiva Gonzalez stabbed to death, and his sister Clodine with strangle marks, blunt force trauma to her to her head, and many stab wounds to her chest and abdomen. I'll go into Seth's alibi in more detail later. The next day, during a press conference, Seth asked for any information about the killers of his family and offered up a $100,000 reward. Seth attracted public sympathy and sang One Sweet Day at his family's funeral, where he was also a pallbearer. So when police interview Seth, he comes up with the following alibi. So this is from the court record. The first alibi was to the following effect. On the afternoon of 10th of July 2001, Seth left his father's office at Blacktown at about 4.30pm. On the trip home, Seth received a text message from Sam DeSillo that Sam DeSillo had a basketball game that evening and would be unable to meet Seth at 6 o'clock as he had previously been arranged between them. Seth arrived home at about 6 o'clock and drove into the carport. However, he did not enter the house. While he was in the car in the carport, he received a call on his mobile phone from Sam DeSillo. An arrangement was made between Seth and Sam that they should meet at 8 o'clock. Seth decided that before meeting Sam at 8 o'clock, he would visit a friend, Raph de Leon, who lived at Kings Ridge near Blacktown. Seth drove to the Blacktown area, but was unable to find Raph de Leon's house. As time was passing, Seth abandoned the attempt to visit Raph, 
and drove back to North Ryde in order to keep his appointment with Sam at 8 o'clock. The first uh, alibi was constructed by Seth so as to account for, amongst other things, the presence of Seth's car in the carport shortly after 6 o'clock, Seth being aware that his aunt had come to the house shortly after 6 o'clock and would have seen his car. The first alibi was advanced in a statement Seth made to police on the night of 10 to the 11 of July 2001 and he maintained this first alibi on a number of subsequent occasions including an interview by police at 6 Collins Street on the 16th of July 2001 and further interviews by police on the 1st of August and the 3rd of August 2001. In January 2002, Seth abandoned the first alibi. He had concluded that there were insuperable difficulties with the first alibi. The first alibi was inconsistent with the sighting of his car in the carport at 6 Collins Street by Mariella Pavoni between 4.15 and 4.30pm in the afternoon of the 10th of July. The first alibi was not corroborated by and was inconsistent with information supplied to the police by Sam and records of the use of the mobile telephones of Seth and Sam DeSillo. And at the trial, Seth, in giving evidence, accepted that the first alibi was a lot of lies. In January 2002, Seth began, began constructing a second alibi. In an intercepted telephone conversation with a friend on the 10th of January 2002, he told the friend that the new alibi would have to be solid, otherwise it could blow in my face again. The second alibi was elaborated in a written statement by Seth, dated the 12th of April 2002, which was provided to police on the 22nd of May 2002. At the trial, Seth gave evidence in chief in support of the second alibi. The second alibi was to the following effect. On the afternoon of the 10th of July 2001, he left his father's office at Blacktown at some time before 4 o'clock. He arrived home, parked his car in the carport, but didn't did not go inside the house. He walked to a nearby service station in Wicks Road and after waiting a few minutes at the service station, he caught a passing taxi and travelled in the taxi to Chatswood where he alighted. He walked to the uh, premises of a brothel at Chatswood and after waiting for a period of time inside the brothel, he selected a prostitute who he named and had sex with her. Afterwards, he walked to the railway station and caught a taxi back to his home. He did not enter the house. He got into his own car and drove his own car to Sam DeSillo's house. The second alibi was constructed by Seth so as to account for, amongst other things, the sightings of his car in the carport of the house by both Mariella Pavoni and Emily Luna, his aunt, and to provide an explanation of how his car, but not him himself, could have been at 6 Collins Street. The second alibi was also constructed by Seth, 
so that the alibi itself would provide an explanation of why he had not advanced the alibi earlier. Seth had said he did not want to tell the truth earlier about his movements before meeting Sam DeSillo because he was too embarrassed to reveal to the members of his extended family that he had been with a prostitute on the night his parents were killed. He took steps to collect evidence which would support his second alibi, including pressuring the prostitute at the brothel to give false evidence to support the alibi and persuading a taxi driver who he met in Chatswood in January 2002 to make an untruthful statement, the terms of which were dictated by Seth, that the taxi driver recalled seeing Seth in the second week of July 2001 picking him up from a service station in Wicks Road North Ride and taking him to Chatswood Railway Station. There were also other false trails for police to investigate. One being fabricated threatening emails from a business rival of Teddy Gonzalez. There was also a staged attempt of burglary and abduction. Police were also suspicious when Seth put a deposit on a $173,000 Lexus, which he told the dealership that he would pay off once his inheritance came through. Now, this inheritance was not small. It was comprised of about $1.5 million from the estate in Australia, but there were also reports that his family had around $8.8 million worth of assets back in the Philippines. He also pawned off his mother's jewellery and traded in their cars. Now, who'd pawn off their mum's jewellery just after she'd been murdered? Seth ended up being charged with three counts of murder on June the 13th, 2002, nearly a year after the crimes were committed. He was denied bail and was prevented from accessing the family estate to mount his defence as it would be very unusual for the defendant to be able to do this when charged with the murder of his family. Seth's grandmother in the Philippines, who was the executrix of the family estate, also tendered a letter to the public trustee saying that morally they could not allow Teddy Gonzalez's estate to be used in the murder trial. In her letter, it stated, Words cannot describe and convey our grief loss and outrage over what befell him, our daughter-in-law and our granddaughter. We refuse any part of the estate of our son Teddy to be used in any manner, directly or indirectly, for the defence of Seth. Seth launched legal action against his granny, but this failed even though his lawyer said his client was entitled to the presumption of innocence. Gonzalez said he needed $1.2 million to mount his defence and that he only had $400 in his bank. Legal counsel suggested that a defendant seeking access to the money of those he stands charged with killing may be a world first. While the main focus was on the three murder victims, it came to light during investigations that Seth had previously tried to poison his mother. Beginning in February 2001 and continuing into June and July 2001, he made computer searches on the internet concerning poisons and particularly 
poisonous plants and especially extremely lethal poisons made from the seeds of two particular plants. On Sunday the 24th of June 2001, he sent an order form by express post to an Australian supplier of seeds of one of the plants. On Monday the 25th of June, he noticed on the supplier's website that the supplier was on annual leave. On 25th of June, he sent an email to the supply, supplier saying that he had ordered the seeds as a gift for my mother's 60th birthday this weekend. She had been looking for those particular seeds ever since she saw them in Florida last year. And asking the supplier to make an exception and supply the seeds he'd ordered, notwithstanding that the supplier was on annual leave. Now, Seth's mother was only 43 and not 60 years old and that she'd never travelled to Florida the previous year. Further emails were exchanged between Seth and the supplier. The supplier dispatched the seeds Seth had ordered and informed him that the seed should arrive on Friday the 29th of June. Seth received the seeds... Seth received the seeds he had ordered on or about the 29th of June. On Sunday the 1st of July, Mrs. Gonzalez complained of feeling unwell. On Tuesday the 3rd of July, she was admitted to the Adventist Hospital at Warunga, where she remained overnight. She was discharged from the Adventist Hospital the following afternoon. The doctor who treated Mrs. Gonzalez at the Adventist Hospital noticed that Mrs. Gonzalez gave a history of three days of worsening abdominal pain and diarrhoea. Mrs. Gonzalez herself attributed her condition to something she had eaten or drunk at a restaurant on the night of Saturday the 30th of June. The doctor who treated Mrs. Gonzalez at the Adventist Hospital formed the opinion that Mrs. Gonzalez was suffering from colitis. That is an inflammation of the bowel which might have been caused by food poisoning, but understandably, the doctor did not consider the possibility that Mrs. Gonzalez had been poisoned by a rare poison extracted from the seeds of a plant. The results of tests which were performed at the Adventist Hospital on Mrs. Gonzalez's blood, feces and urine were in fact inconsistent with her, being, uh, her condition being due to food poisoning. On the 2nd of July 2001, a well-known food manufacturer received an anonymous letter stating that three of its products had been poisoned, that they were now on the shelves of supermarkets and this is what you get for treating employees like garbage. On July 2001, the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Quarantine Inspection Service received letters which were in the same terms, purporting to be from concerned employees of the food company, stating that the employees had received anonymous communications to the effect that some of the company's products had been poisoned and that the employees had tried, unsuccessfully, to persuade the management of the food company to increase increase safety measures to remove products from retail outlets and to warn the public. A computer expert who examined computers used by Seth was able to retrieve traces of the letters 
and the evidence of a fingerprint expert who identified a fingerprint on the envelope in which the letter to the Australian Federal Police was enclosed as being a fingerprint of Seth, that he had composed and sent all three letters, that this, the, that is the letter to the food company and the letters to the Australian Federal Police and Australian Quarantine Inspection Service. After July 10, 2001, a canister containing liquid was found by police in Seth's bedroom at 6 Collins Street. Attempts were made by police to have the liquid analysed, but a laboratory in the United States reported that it had detected one of the two plant seed poisons in the liquid, but that the testing the laboratory had carried out was not sufficiently reliable for court purposes. So the trial commenced on April the 6th, 2004 in the Supreme Court of New South Wales. At the trial, prosecutors would allege that Sev had several motives to kill his family. He was doing poorly at school and his parents had threatened to take away certain privileges, such as his car, if he failed his uni courses, of which he did fail and he had tried to cover up the failure by falsifying his results, but he'd been found out. His family estate in Australia was worth a couple of million dollars, plus there was up to $9 million worth of real estate back in Manila. Seth and his sister were the sole heirs of this, and if, they were, if his family were to all die, then he would become the sole beneficiary. So it was found that the motives for Seth committing the murders were that he was fearful that because of his poor performance in his university studies, his parents might take away his car from him and might withdraw other privileges which had been granted to him and that he wished to succeed without delay as sole heir to his parents' property. At the trial, Seth raised two alibis, both of which the jury must have rejected beyond reasonable doubt. The first alibi, Seth admitted to lying about his whereabouts as he didn't want his family to find out that he had visited a prostitute. At the trial, the second alibi was contradicted by evidence from the prostitute, evidence of records of the brothel, which showed that the prostitute had not been at work at the brothel on the 10th of July 2001, evidence of the taxi driver and evidence of records of the driving by the taxi driver of his taxi on the 10th of July 2001. Apart from raising the two false alibis, Seth laid many false trails with the intention of misleading the police who were investigating the deaths of the members of his family and of of diverting suspicion from himself. These false trails included spray-painting the words Fuck Off Asians KKK on the wall in the house, which was intended by Seth to mislead the police into supposing that the members of Seth's family had been the victims of racist crimes, telling police that after he returned home on the night of 10th of July 2001, he had seen and heard some intruder leaving the house, suggesting to police that members of his family had been killed at the instigation of a prominent Philippines businessman who he named, telling police that he had received threatening emails, reporting to police that in the early hours of 30th of May 2002, an an attempt had been made to break into his unit in which he was living 
and claiming that on the 31st of May 2002, he had been abducted and assaulted. All of these assertions made to police were false and knowingly, knowingly false. <clears throat> so this was after the murders. He'd uh, told police that he'd been abducted and assaulted, and assaulted and someone tried to break into his unit, um, trying to put the police off during the investigation. Police had investigated, and the prosecution would allege, that on the 10th of July 2001, Mr. and Mrs. Gonzalez went to work at Mr. Gonzalez's legal practice in Blacktown. They travelled to Blacktown in separate vehicles. Clodine remained at home. On the morning of 10th of July 2001, Seth went to Macquarie University and then returned home. He then travelled in his own car, which had been a gift to him from his parents, to his father's office in Blacktown. He arrived at his father's office around one o'clock in the afternoon. At his father's office, Seth attempted to fix one of the office computers, which was not functioning properly, and he had made some telephone calls for the purpose of the legal practice. Seth left his father's office at some time between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the afternoon and drove in his car to the home at North Ride. It took him about 30 to 40 minutes to travel in his car from the office at Blacktown to the home at North Ride. On arriving home, he parked his car in an open carport at the front of the house. Seth had arrived home by the time, which was sometime between 4.15 and 4.30, that Mariella Pavoni, a client of Mr. Gonzalez, deposited some documents in the letterbox at the front of the house and observed Seth's car in the open carport. The records for the use of Clodine's Gonzalez mobile phone show that a text message using the mobile phone was sent at 4.04pm on the 10th of July and Clodine was then still alive. At approximately 4.30pm, Seth entered her bedroom where she was studying. Seth was armed with a baseball bat or a bat similar to a baseball bat and with one or two kitchen knives which Seth had taken from a knife block in the kitchen of the house. These two knives were the longest knives in the set of knives in the block. Inside her bedroom, Seth, not necessarily in this order, compressed her neck, endeavouring to strangle her, struck her at least six separate blows to the head with the bat and stabbed her many times with one or both of the knives. He inflicted five major stab wounds into Clodine's neck and two major stab wounds to her chest or abdomen. The cause of her death was the combined effect of the compression of her neck, the blunt force head injuries and the abdominal stab wounds. After killing her, Seth remained in the house. A few minutes after 6pm, Seth's auntie Emily Luna came to 6 Collins Street. She saw Seth's car parked in the carport. She rang the front door of the house, but no one answered, and she left. Although no one answered the front doorbell, Seth was still inside the house. So that was a bit of a close call for Seth. Mrs. Gonzalez left her husband, husband's office at about 10 to 5 in the afternoon with an employee named Patricia Tonell. Shortly afterwards, Mrs. Gonzalez parted company with Patricia and Mrs. Gonzalez then drove home to 6 Collins Street in her car.
arriving home about half past five. She entered the house. Very shortly after Mrs. Gonzalez entered the house, Seth attacked her with one of the kitchen knives. While Mrs. Gonzalez was in the living dining room of the house, Seth inflicted multiple stab wounds and cuts to Mrs. Gonzalez's face, neck, chest and abdomen. Mrs. Gonzalez's windpipe was completely transected. That is, the upper half of the windpipe was completely severed from the lower half. That Mrs. Gonzalez was attacked very shortly after entering the house is shown by, amongst other things, the circumstances that she was still wearing the shoes she had worn to work with her hand, and her handbag was found on the floor close to her body. Mrs. Gonzalez's usually usual practice when she arrived home was to take off the shoes she had been wearing outside the house and put them in a shoe cupboard and put her handbag in one or other of two special places. Mr. Gonzalez left the office at Blacktown at some time after his wife. Records of the use of his mobile phone show that at 6.23, Mr. Gonzalez made a call on the mobile telephone to the landline at 6 Collins Street. This call was not answered. Mr. Gonzalez drove to his home, arriving at about 6.50pm. He entered the house. Very shortly after entering the house, Seth attacked Mr. Gonzalez with one of the kitchen knives. While Mr. Gonzalez was still close to the front door, Seth inflicted multiple stab wounds to Mr. Gonzalez's neck, chest, back and abdomen. One of the stab wounds penetrated his right lung, another penetrated his heart and another partially severed his spinal cord. Vastly more force was used by Seth than was necessary to kill Mr. Gonzalez. That Mr. Gonzalez was attacked shortly after entering the house is shown by, amongst other things, the place in the house where he was attacked and the circumstances that he was still wearing the clothes and shoes he had worn to work and his briefcase was found on the floor near his body. At some time on the evening of July 10, 2001, Seth spray-painted on a wall of the combined family room and kitchen in the house the words, Fuck off Asians, KKK. After killing the three victims, Seth disposed of the knife or knives he used in the stabbing of the victims, the bat he'd used in striking Claudine, and the shoes and clothing he'd been wearing at the time of committing the murders. The shoes and clothing had become bloodstained and none of these items have ever been found. On the previous night, that is the night of the 9th of July 2001, Seth had made arrangements with a friend Sam, who lived nearby, that they would meet at 8 o'clock on the evening of 10th of July at Sam's house and they'd go out together for the evening. On the 10th of July, Seth, after committing the murders, went to Sam's house arriving there about 8pm. Seth and Sam, who of course knew nothing about the murders and was told nothing about the murders by Seth, went together in Seth's car to the city. They went to Planet Hollywood in George Street and then to a nearby video game centre. Later in the evening, Seth drove back to North Ride. He dropped Sam off at Sam's house at about 11.30pm and drove to 6 Collins Street. At some time after arriving at his home, Seth made an emergency telephone call to the ambulance service. A tape recording of the emergency telephone call was played at the trial. 
The precise time of the telephone call was not fixed by any evidence at the trial. In the emergency telephone call, Seth told the operator of the service that someone had shot his parents and that there was a lot of blood. In the telephone call, Seth sounded distraught. At about 11.30pm in the evening of 10th of July, a neighbour, John Atamian, who lived at 7 Collins Street, that is opposite 6 Collins Street, was woken by the sound of Seth banging on the wall of Mr. Atamian's bedroom. Mr. Atamian went outside and Seth told him that all of Seth's family had been killed. Mr. Atamian declined to enter the house at 6 Collins Street. Another neighbour, Shane Hanley, who was watching television, heard someone calling for help and went outside. Seth told Mr. Hanley that his family had been shot and that they were all dead. Seth appeared to Mr. Hanley to be distraught. Seth and Mr. Hanley entered the house at 6 Collins Street. Mr. Hanley saw the dead bodies of Mr. Gonzalez and Mrs. Gonzalez. Seth straddled the bodies of each, his, each of his parents, calling out, Papa, Papa, or Mommy, Mommy. He gave the appearance of being overwhelmed with grief. Ambulance officers and police subsequently arrived at the house. So finally, the Crown submitted, in effect, that the murders committed by the prisoner were objectively heinous, that they fell within the worst class of cases of murder at common law, and that there was no circumstance mitigating the objective criminality of the offences, and that, with the possible exception of the prisoner's youth, there was no subjective feature which would mitigate the penalties which should be imposed. Consequently, subject possibly, possibly to the prisoner's youth, maximum sentences of life imprisonment should be imposed. In support of these submissions, the Crown said, amongst other things, that the prisoner had committed three murders, that the victims were the prisoner's parents and sister, that there had been a high degree of brutality or violence in the commission of the murders, that the murders had been premeditated and planned, that although the murders had been committed in one criminal episode, there had been distinct intervals of time between the commission of the first and second murders and the commission of the second and third murders, that the pr prisoner had made searches about poisons and had obtained poisonous seeds with the intention of poisoning his parents and had administrated poison to his mother that he had gone out with Sam on the evening of 10th of July as part of a plan to create an alibi for himself or at least the time he was with Sam, and that his going out with Sam soon after he had committed the murders demonstrated his callousness, that he had acted out of the base motives of ridding himself of threats to his way of life and of obtaining an inheritance from his parents, that he had raised false alibis and laid false trails with the intention of misleading police. That he had not pleaded guilty, that he had not shown any contrition, that he had not provided any assistance to law enforcement authorities, indeed quite the contrary. That he did not have any excuse of having had a deprived background or upbringing, and that he did not suffer from any mental condition which might have mitigated his criminality. On the 20th of May 2004, the jury found Gonzalez guilty on all four charges, 
He was sentenced on the 17th of September 2004 to three concurrent life sentences without parole for the murders. Justice Bruce James remarking, I considered that the murders show features of very great heinousness and that there are no facts mitigating the objective seriousness of the murders and hence the murders fall within the worst category of cases of murder at common law. Gonzalez is now serving his sentence at the Maximum Security Super Prison in Goulburn, New South Wales, and he still maintains his innocence. In June 2007, Gonzalez was granted approval to appeal his his conviction and his sentence. The Supreme Court determined that statements taken from Gonzalez by police on the night of the murders may be inadmissible as he was not cautioned. On 27th of November 2007, Seth Gonzalez's appeal was dismissed as there had been no miscarriage of justice and his convictions remained. So there you go, true crime islanders. Seth was a narcissistic, but he was also a failure. In order to live in his fantasy world, he knew he could only do it by inheriting his family's estate. He was was a compulsive liar, but he even failed at that. He had everything, but that was still not enough. He's in prison and his family are all dead. What a waste. So that brings an end to another episode. Uh, sorry for the week's delay in getting this out, but it was I was off the island for a week or so on holidays. I do try to get each episode out on a bi-weekly set, schedule, usually Monday nights. But if you, of course, if you just subscribe via iTunes or load the RSS feed into your favourite podcast app, you'll get each episode automatically. We're on um, Stitcher, uh, Pocket Casts, uh, Podbean. Well, plenty of those things were all listed on uh, we've got our facebook page and twitter and i'd like to thank all my listeners twitter and facebook followers and a special mention to nancy that messaged me the other day thank you very much uh, true crime island will always be commercial free as it's my hobby and all i need in return is uh, from people is to appreciate the effort i put in remember don't forget to delete your browser history this is your host cambo signing off from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast.